Live from Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault Episode 19, Gorath featuring Jack G-Man Hudgens. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, Nathan Marchand, the curator of the Film Vault. But today, in another special mini-sode, air quotes, <laughs> the joining me today is everyone's favorite G-fan on Twitter, Jack Hudgens, better known as G-Man. Welcome, good hello. sir. <laughs> hello, hello, hello. I don't know if I'm the favorite. That's probably going a little... <laughs> Sometimes most hated, most <laughs> no. favorite hated, uh, but definitely. Not. <laughs> so, I, actually, to be honest, don't you have to be extremely hated to also be extremely loved? I mean, that's kind of how things work, isn't it? I, <laughs> I don't know. I'm making I, crap up as I go. There are certainly people on there that I love, and I, I think they love me back. But are there, there's also people who don't love me back, and that's perfectly fine. They're perfectly okay to not love me back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, apparently my intrepid producer uh, both loves and hates you, depending on the day. Well, that's because we got in a bar fight on the Monster Island uh, bar area, the the building. <laughs> the, the Monster Land Resort? No, no, the Monster Land Tavern. No, 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 it was the Monster Land Tavern across from that. Oh, it wasn't King Caesar's place? Uh, I know that's no, a thing. No, no, yeah. no. Well, it's the great sushi. Uh, but it... <laughs> No, it was the, the Monster Island Tavern, and I walked in there, and I didn't know it was Jimmy. Okay, I didn't because he was he was wearing his COVID mask. I didn't I didn't notice it was him. And it's a snazzy looking COVID mask. I got to say, it was it was. I have to admit though, it was a really nice COVID mask because it looks it, it had like the mouth of Mechagodzilla on it. <laughs> um, it was nice. So I go in there, and like, you know, I order something, and Jimmy was I. I don't want to say what state he was in. Maybe he could tell you, but he got I've, upset. You, me. you should have saw him after Kaiju Quarantine too, man. I have rarely seen <laughs> a hangover that bad. I'm serious. Well, he <laughs> he, poor Jimmy needed he help. Had. I mean, our, we punctuated the, the Kaiju Quarantine too with Jumbarg Ace and Giant. Mm, well, I, yeah, let me tell you. I don't you. know what he had had, but he was very much... Uh, upset about something and so he takes a swing at me and I defend myself I swing at him we're scuffling and then we hit the emergency evacuation lever that all the buildings have you know how all the buildings yep. will rocket off the island in case the monsters get too out of control and start attacking mm -hmm. uh, the outposts there okay so I think that's a great idea to rocket off your individual buildings to safety from the island except I didn't realize that only the walls and the ceiling rocket off and the actual floor and tables yeah. just stay well, there. A, it's a small design flaw, I think. The I, board I, hasn't quite brought in the right engineer to take care of that yet. I, I didn't realize I was supposed to like latch on to like you know the dead moose on the wall or something like that. <laughs> so anyway, that happens, and I look up, and then uh, Maguma is there. Oh. And I have a question for you. How did you get a giant COVID mask on him with those tusks? Because that's very impressive. Mothra is apparently uh, quite the seamstress in her spare time, so uh, <laughs> I think she spun it with her webbing. <laughs> he has no ears. I just stopped fighting after that. I was like, how did that happen? Yeah. But by that point, he passed out, and here we are. Here yeah. we are. But uh, other than that, I've had a good time on the island. Yeah, uh, that's I didn't get to finish my dart game because the dartboard flew off with the, the walls uh, yeah. off the island, but we're good. Yeah, I mean, why I'm, do I have a feeling the, the paperwork of, about all of this is going to be, uh, oh my you. gosh. <laughs> uh, I don't know. The It's the weirdest thing. My official job title is film curator, but for whatever reason, the board decides to give me busy work, random busy work I guess nobody else wants to do. It's just like, come on, I'm not an intern. Last I Nathan, checked. Nathan, have you met these board members yet? No, I have never had direct communication with them. It's... A little bit scary, I have to say. Sometimes they uh, remind me a little too much of Sele. <laughs> if you've Very ever curious. seen An Evangelion, that will be oh, yeah. mildly terrifying for you. <laughs> yeah. 
How about you, Jimmy? Have you ever seen uh, had direct communication with them? Once. I find that highly suspect. I do too. But anyway, quite over hangover. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, bar fights aside, the three of us need to chat a little bit after today's broadcast because I would like to know more about all of this. <laughs> I just want to know where the rest of the tavern is. Yeah, the, there's a nice homing beacon on it. I'm sure it'll... Uh, either it's going to come back itself or Jimmy's probably going to get sent out with the SY3 or something to find it. I don't know. Whatever he's <laughs> working on this week in his garage. But you, my friend, are joining me today for this special, I guess you could call it, mini-sode. Normally, I try to keep these to, I don't know, you know, less than 30 minutes. The board's very particular about this, but I once again reminded them, yes, but I'm not the only one here. And do you really want to pick a fight with Jack? I'm just saying, guys. I mean, Jimmy did. <laughs> well, yeah, Jimmy did, but Jimmy was also <laughs> drunk and, you know, <laughs> you know, and a bit stupid. So, hey, calm down, Jimmy. Calm down. All right. I saw you after Kaiju <laughs> Quarantine 2. You and Jack Daniels had a little too much fun. I'm just saying. Okay. Don't hit that button. Okay. Yeah, don't pull the lever. Yeah. Don't pull. Yeah. Especially don't pull the lever. Really? We still don't quite know what every single button in the studio does. So don't be pushing things. You don't know what they do. <laughs> but anyway, you are joining me today to talk about Gorath, the 1962 Toho classic that not nearly enough people in the United States, I think, know about. <laughs> well, probably for good reason. This movie is a slow burn. Ha. There you go. You just got your first rim shot of the night. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I recently did a show for my own podcast on the film, Star Trek The Motion Picture. Yeah, The Drift and Space. I, That's the podcast. On The Drift Space. Yeah, on The Drift Space. And I couldn't help but think of this movie as I was doing it <laughs> because... <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I, you know, it, 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 this movie is the, the, kind of ahead of its time a little bit, I would say. Well, think about it. Both films are these grand scale science fiction pieces with beautiful effect shots and set pieces, but they are slugs in terms of pacing, minimal character growth. So Gorath does juggle a lot of characters played by a stellar cast and each of them. Oh, yeah. The, the cast in this very is fantastic. Little. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I mean, we've got Takeshi Shimura, Akira Kubo, uh, Kumi Mizuno. I should have written down everybody who's in this. The Kenji Sah uh, is Kenji Sahara in this? I forget. I believe he's yeah, briefly. Yeah, and then you know David uh, on on Jujuzaki freak out. And you know what Masanari uh, Nihai uh, Nihei is as mm -hmm. Ito uh, Kanai's friend. Kanai played by Akira Kuba uh, is in the film, and he played Ide from the original Ultraman series. Yes, I was and, trying to remember. I re remember hearing on uh, Kaiju Cast actually their episode on this film where they mentioned that there was somebody from Ultraman, the original Ultraman, who was in this mm -hmm. movie. And I kept looking the entire time. Unfortunately, I was looking for the wrong guy. I was looking for Suzumu Karobe, who played Shin Hayata. He's not. Oh in this. yeah, yeah, no. He's, he's <laughs> for some odd reason, this, I thought but... it was him, but he's not in it. Although Akira Kubo almost looks like him. <laughs> <laughs> But he's in it, and he, you know, again, like the rest of the cast, he doesn't do too much. But the man is enough of a presence to get noticed. And I was very happy to see him in this movie. And his friend, Kanai, played by Akira Kubo. Akira Kubo manages to find a way to make whatever character he's playing interesting. Yeah. And, and he was the more interesting character in this movie, what with the amnesia subplot and whatnot. But he still didn't have... Yeah, that was there for, say. what, about 10 minutes? <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, you're you're not wrong, but but he still had more to do than most. It, it was making me think of uh, Rodan. Because <laughs> they do the, the amnesia yeah. thing in Rodan, too. And in a very similar way, too, because for those who don't know, this is something of a disaster movie. The science fiction disaster movie, kind of in the vein of When Worlds Collide, although people like Stuart Goldberg would tell you that this is a better movie than When Worlds Collide. I don't know. I've never seen When Worlds Collide. But we have a rogue star that is on a collision course with Earth, and the world has to respond to figure out what to do about that. Their solution is not the Armageddon solution, which is blow the snot out of it. The, the solution is uh, move the Earth, because, you know, if you can't get rid of it, you got to move the Earth out of the way. So it's only logical, right? 
<laughs> absolutely. No, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, so the Gorath, the titular Gorath is not a monster. It is this rogue star. Although Gorath makes, I don't know if, it qual- if you can call an inanimate object making a cameo, but you know, Gorath does reappear in Final Wars because everything reappears in Final Wars. In Final Wars, <laughs> right, yeah. Um, but... You mentioned we laugh at the whole. They have to move the Earth physically <laughs> to get it out of the way. With of giant rockets. <laughs> with giant rockets. With heavy water <laughs> rockets. Yeah, that uh, I, I wrote it down. Of it was like six hundred plus six point six megatons. Oh no, that's what's needed to destroy Gorath, and then. Or maybe I'm getting my numbers mixed up. Oh, it's 6.6 billion megatons of energy to move the Earth with these rockets in the Antarctic. Yeah, yeah, because they said it was negative six power yeah. needed to move it. Yeah, I have I a feeling uh, Jimmy's going to be having one heck of a time with uh, all the science in this movie. <laughs> well, <laughs> and that was another thing that made that reminded me of Star Trek The Motion Picture because they referenced that measurement of power. Power, like Viger had two power, and the power needed to move Earth is negative six power. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, this is interesting. And other things that reminded me of Star Trek The Motion Picture, of course, was the slow pacing. Uh <laughs> The, the crazy close-ups of our love craftian yeah. <laughs> space object. That, I was thinking that. And I think that that's why I was comparing this to Rodan. Because apparently, because you know, the reason we have the amnesia subplot in Rodan is because Kenji Sahara wakes up in a Rodan nest, sees one of them hatch, and then freaks out and forgets everything. Then, right, you know, right. But in, in this... I would say it you know makes at least a little bit more sense and it's probably the one scene the one element in this movie when it's trying really hard to be scientific that it just kind of throws science out the window and just decides to be HP Lovecraft because he stares at it in a ship going ahead getting closer to it than all the rest of his comrades and looking at this gigantic thing just apparently makes his mind snap and then he forgets everything. Not just like the last, I don't know, few days or something like Ken, like in Rodan. No, he forgets everything. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because I, I kind of look at it as a slight commentary on like the psychological dangers of space travel that had been reported up to that point. Honda and his writer uh, is Kimura. Kimura, yeah. Takeshi Kimura. Yeah, yeah. They did a lot of research for this movie, and uh, they, I, yeah, I they imagine... spent a week with an actual astrophysicist <laughs> trying yes, to hammer exactly. out the science. And you know, the science is probably debatable. And even Honda said he knew he was playing fast and loose with it, given that the moon gets destroyed, <laughs> and that would have <laughs> yeah, <effect>. yeah. <laughs> but yes, I know you were ranting about that and all the other scientific things while we were trying to watch the movie. Man, <sighs> calm down, okay. This is what but happens when you hard. work with a guy who used to be at NASA. <laughs> oh, Jimmy. He probably doesn't even remember me. <laughs> <laughs> He's shaking his head, so apparently he was that drunk. So, <laughs> <laughs> You know, Honda knew what was going to happen if the moon got destroyed, but it was Tanaka who was like, listen, the truth isn't entertaining. It doesn't sell. Yeah. Destroy the moon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, the truth doesn't make a good movie. <laughs> yes, that's what That he was what he said. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, like, I mean, out of context, you could do so much with just that line. <laughs> well, I, he's not wrong to an extent. You have to exaggerate this stuff to make it entertaining. And Honda's a filmmaker. He knew that. And that's why he went along with it. Heck, that's probably why he went along with the fact that there's a giant walrus in this movie. We will get to that later. Oh. We will get to that later. We will get to that later. Yeah. Oh, uh, my goodness. <laughs> but I do want to focus briefly on the opening of this film. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to look at in, in terms of ideas and design, right? And something that reminds me of a completely different Star Trek picture was the nautical feel of the JX-1 mission at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. We get a, a really wonderful setup of the JX-1's final hurrah, and uh, but but not before this very nautical or submarine-like vision of space travel that mm-hmm. lines up with what Nicholas Mayer did in Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. Oh, uh, yes. The the JX-1 has you know this radar system and these periscopes and everything's <laughs> the very periscope, which made yeah. me laugh because they call them telescopes. 
Yeah. <laughs> it was like, that's not a telescope. That's a freaking periscope. It's an absolutely a periscope. And everything's very two-dimensional, as if space is an open ocean instead of a vast void down yeah, back and forth. That is something that once it was pointed out in a video that I watched, now suddenly every time, whether it's... Because you know, I like you, I adore Star Trek. Absolutely adore Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And before we even got started with the broadcast, you and I spent too much time talking about Star Trek. Talking about Star Trek, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And... <laughs> And Jimmy loves it too. Uh, we were watching Picard together, and you know, and fun stuff like that. You know, back when uh, you know the episodes were first dropping. But all that to say, the space. Once someone pointed, I was like, "Space is three dimensional. It's not an ocean." <laughs> but you know what? That's they, and now fine. suddenly, I'm just like, you know, now suddenly, all of the science fiction I loved makes less sense now, and it makes me sad. <laughs> Uh, suddenly star trek makes no sense (laughs) it's okay because i I love this vision of space travel i love the attention to the detail and the creation of space travel as a world specifically suited for metaphorical waves in the stars it's a really Mm -hmm. fun somewhat pulpy take on space travel that honda pulled off very well here i think yeah that, that should be commended oh it should be and this was not his first rodeo into such things you know he had no Battle in Outer Space and the Mysterians before this, mm-hmm. which have both been covered on the show. Yep. I would say probably out of either of those, this reminded me a lot of the Mysterians, particularly with how it was handling the cast and the characters, even kind of to a certain extent, the the story structure as well, where you have this large cast of characters and it's not really about the characters. This is not a character driven story, although it tries mm-hmm. at points. There's some interesting interpersonal drama that's going on. Well, it tries to be an ensemble piece, right? And there's definitely kind of main characters in each story arc, Mm -hmm. right? Like Akira Kubo is sort of the main character of the JX2 story Mm -hmm. arc, his Kanai character. And uh, uh, Ryo uh, Akebe, Akebe, yeah, uh, who plays Dr. Tozawa, he's sort of the main character in the Move the Earth story arc, right? Yeah. And, and proves that he actually can act, unlike in Varan, where he is totally well. phony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he does a much better job here. I have to give it to him. But he also had a much bigger role. And he I did. Think in fact, uh, what's funny is uh, I was reading Stuart Galbraith's book, uh, his entry about this film, and discovered that there were actually contemporary <clears throat> critics who praised Rio Akebe's performance. Like, oh, he can act. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he died, I think, in 2010, I want to say. And uh, I got, don't remember offhand, and if you're wrong, Jimmy will be correct gladly you in correct his blog. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he got a lot of write-ups after his death, actually. I, I know Variety and the Japan Times both had some very nice, large write-ups about him and his contribution to the golden age of Japanese film. Mm-hmm. So the man, he could act. Oh, yeah, he could act. In terms of this genre, it just took him a while. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> apparently. So you were very much appreciating the pulpy nautical feel of the JX right. ships. I mean, overall, this movie is much more realistic than, say, the super comic booky pulpy feel of Monster Zero. But I, I enjoyed <laughs> yeah. that. <laughs> oh, man. I enjoyed- I, Jimmy is losing his mind right now. He had... That's his favorite Godzilla movie, and you know he. Well, out- he and I can get along with that. We can have a. We can have a well, solid. The, <laughs> it's also because when he went to NASA as a wee lad in the 1970s, you know, he was trained by Glenn. So That's and he keeps right. call and he keeps calling Nick Adams his spirit animal, which I think is a weird thing for a NASA engineer to say. But I've learned that there's nothing truly weird on this island at this point. <laughs> <laughs> The walrus wearing a COVID mask. Of course not. <laughs> you get used to it after a while. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I enjoyed that aspect of it because, you know, as absurd as a lot of the stuff is going on here, I think it owns the very straight face take on all of this stuff. So they treat space as kind of this two dimensional nautical highway, essentially. Mm-hmm. Is that really the most unrealistic thing about this movie? <laughs> We've already mentioned that they built giant rockets in no time, I might add, and they physically move the earth. I wish I had had the time, especially, you know, with, I mean, I have a NASA engineer in the producer booth right now who could tell me, one, is that physically possible? Two, are their energy calculations actually accurate? Because I th- that just seems like it would be an astronomically well, high amount of energy to 
I don't know if this is the right word to say, but to physically break the Earth's orbit. <laughs> so the professor that Honda was with was Professor uh, Hatanaka, I believe was his name. Sounds right. And he says that all of uh, Ikebe's lines in the film are based on real scientific data for the time. Hot day. Um, and that all of it was calculated by this professor for the film. Oh, wow. So how that actually, <laughs> the likelihood that we can stick a rocket booster at the bottom of the earth and get it moving without the South Pole melting. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's, I question that, but who's to say, I mean, if a professor told Honda that it was negative six power to take <laughs> the earth from point A to point B, who are we to argue? Because I am not an astrophysicist. I, I'm a movie critic, and that, that's about. It. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I'm I'm just uh, you know, a, a fanboy who's <laughs> who works as a film curator. So I mean, <laughs> although I, I have gained a reputation now in the kaiju podcasting world, I just listened to the latest episode from my friends over at Kaiju Weekly, Travis and Michael, and <laughs> they have now coined the phrase pulling a march hand on their show which they use in reference to doing research on whatever film they're talking about or whatever subject within the film now so they even uh, retooled that a little bit and called it the full march hand of like oh great i didn't realize i had become a sequel to the full monty that's a little disturbing uh, <laughs> But I didn't quite pull a full march and today you know, with this, you know, to see like, is that, are those numbers actually accurate? You know, and Jimmy's been too busy in his garage to be like, oh, really, march and you want some scientific numbers? Do I really have to do all the math for you? I think you'd think with the help of uh, Jet Jaguar, he'd be a little more on the yeah. ball with that. Well, apparently Jet Jaguar is more manual labor than calculator. I can I can understand that. Okay, all right. The, the reason he brought him in is because of Jet Jaguar's size changing ability. So it makes it easier to move parts from the Mogaras into Mechanicon. Apparently, <laughs> so <laughs> I just think but it's yeah, exciting so, having Jet Jaguar here. But that's beside the point. Yeah, Although there you go. we could we I, here's I a weak segue for you. When we first meet Akira Kubo, he's dressed up as not Robbie the Robot, <laughs> which that was amusing, but a little and a little odd. <laughs> I was like, "What are they doing? Where he's cosplaying a robot? <laughs> it's some sort of street you know, festival." And it was Christmas time as well. Yeah, I don't know why he was in a Halloween costume for Christmas time, but sure, why not? Uh, <laughs> He was the most energetic in this film, right? He he had the most I think character. He was, he was the youngest one there, so that definitely helped. Yeah. A lot of youthful it definitely energy. Helped. But there were aspects of his character I didn't like, like how he threw a photo of one of his best friends dead. <laughs> That's a jerk dead move. Fiance. Jerk move. How, I'm just saying. I was like, not okay. Not okay. And they never really go back to that. They don't, you know? unfortunately. And the thing is, is that for me, it was a twofold issue that I had with that. One, it's a jerk move because he's trying to impress this woman whose fiance mm -hmm. had just died. And like I said, it does try its hand at some interpersonal drama because he was on the JX1 that gets destroyed in the first scene of the movie. So he takes it and he throws it out. So it's a jerk move on that in that regard. But also I'm thinking, you better pray that there's nobody on you know walking on the sidewalk right now because you <laughs> might just kill them with terminal velocity or something at this point. <laughs> Death by photo frame. I mean that <laughs> Yeah, it's a reoccurring problem with the movie. I I've I've already mentioned that I don't like how slow it is. But slow movies and even boring movies, I still can find fascinating for other reasons. And I'll get to that later. But the, <laughs> the other thing I have is that, for example, uh, Dr. Tozawa explained more heavy water rockets were needed to escape gravity, right? Mm -hmm. he, he laments that's not enough and the UN wouldn't greenlight more uh, of these rockets. But in the, er in the end, Earth was okay. It did work. So why was that introduced to the story to begin with? I can understand if the character is worried his plan won't work and they want to like kind of explore that a little bit, but he literally has the weight of the world to move. 
Yeah. <laughs> and but they never circled back to did he get more rockets? Did he not get more rockets? They never said he did. So what what was Well, I could have swore that cuz they give out one number during one of the UN conference scenes. And then I swear when they actually start talking about the actual energy output when they've built the rockets, I swear it was a little bit higher, which actually kind of compounds the problem now that I think about it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I, I can't remember. It was just a very odd moment that they never circled back to. Were there ramifications for there not being enough rockets? And as far as I can tell, no, because once Goroth passes at the end, spoilers. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unlike, say, The Last War, which was covered in our previous minisode, this actually has a happy ending. I bring it up because Goldbraith described this as essentially a few... No, it wasn't Goldbraith. It was uh, John LeMay. Let me get my sources correct here. He said this was a fusion of Mothra and the Last War. Kind of. Initially, this movie didn't have a happy ending. Japan's elite was going to be rocketed out of there, and Goreth actually hits the planet. But Kimira and Honda wanted to go for something more optimistic. Which is interesting when you do your research on Kimura, who was a very uh, dour, pessimistic man. I mean, he considers his masterpiece to be Matongo, and Matongo is not an optimistic movie. No. And I'll be honest, uh, Kimura is probably one of my least favorite writers of early tokusatsu. I think he knocked it out of the park with Matango. He knocked it out of the park with the Mysterians, and he knocked it out of the park with Frankenstein versus Baragon. Everything else, you can clearly tell he's phoning it in. And uh, after Matango, that was definitely true. <laughs> he was phoning it in, and his pessimism, I don't think, lined up with Honda's optimism. And despite the fact Honda and Sekizawa butted heads on realism, I think Honda and Sekizawa were a better narrative team. Than Seems he is I, I feel like it depended Earth. on the project, to be honest. I, I don't know. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, I don't know. Because it's difficult for me, because with all the... <laughs> and as much as you hate this, you know, when uh, when I did my G-Fest presentation with Danny on Sekizawa and Kimura, I did reference your video. <laughs> you're, <Yeah>. you're uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't gag yourself too hard. But I still haven't been able to quite figure out with all the reading I did, like any time I came across something like the Honda biography, anytime it brought up Sekizawa or Kimura, I was paying very close attention because I wanted to gleam anything I could on them. And I can't make heads or tails over who Honda really preferred working with because he had nice things to say about both of them and was proud of projects that he did with both of them. So I don't know. I really don't know because, like you pointed out, on one hand, you would think Sekizawa's sensibilities, his positivity would be more compatible with Honda, but... Mm -hmm. There were points, particularly in the biography, where it seemed like he preferred working with Kimura because, you know, he mm-hmm. got to work on stuff like Matongo. And for him, Matongo, yeah, it was tokusatsu, but for him, it was going back to doing the dramas that he was doing before he got the job to do Godzilla in 1954. If I were a betting man, I'd say Honda preferred working with Kimura. I really do. But I still think the Sekizawa Honda team up was stronger, yeah. usually. Usually. And you know my love for the Mysterians is, you know, at tin power. But it, it, it's... <laughs> yeah, for uh, I think for Jimmy, it's around five. I mean, he's a big <laughs> fan of the Mysterians. <laughs> I love the Mysterians, and that was that was a Takeshi Kimura uh, mm-hmm. screenplay as well. That one worked very well. I thought I thought there was just just enough to the characters to make the story roll, and the effects lined up well. Here, I find that there's too many characters. I find that they don't do enough, and I almost find the movie too long. Like, I feel like this would have made a better Ultra Q episode than it does a feature film. Which is interesting that you bring that up, because we haven't talked about him yet, but there is a connection between this and Ultra Q. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, there is. (laughs) Oh, dear. Do we want to go ahead and open that that can of... Yeah, I mean, we may Uh, as well. We've been dancing around it. Let's just open that can of worms. Are you ready for this, Jimmy? Let's open that can of worms. Maguma, Magma goes by a couple different names. I, I'm going to tell you right now, as you found out, yes, Maguma is here on the island. He is mm-hmm. not a popular mm-hmm. attraction. In fact, all of the American tourists ignore him. <laughs> the fact that you actually acknowledged his existence, he probably got a little <laughs> bit excited about. <laughs> I was just like, you know, this roof zooms off my head, and I'm like, 
Maguma? He's like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I, it's just, oh, yet another, well, not yet another. Well, no, it is yet another because this has happened in the Mysterians. Tomoyuki Tanaka had this crazy idea in his head that kaiju needed to be in everything because kaiju make money. Kaiju are popular. Put kaiju in everything. I'm surprised he didn't get a kaiju put into the last war or something. But Here's the thing. <sighs> I, I, with Magira, I felt like it was a more organic shoe-in. Oh, yeah. Like uh, they, Mo- they Mogura makes sense in the Mysterians. But when a giant monster appeared in what was a world void of giant monsters... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Mogura uh, has the advantage of being a robot. Now, he originally wasn't going to be a robot. Originally, he was going to actually be a mole, because that's where the name comes from. Mogura comes from the Japanese word for mole. (laughs) But then, I think it was Honda, or I can't remember if it was Honda or Subarai. I'll have to reference the episode, or my notes from that episode or something. I'll, I'll just talk to Jimmy. But somebody said it would be easier if we just made it a robot. It made sense. You know, it's this weapon built by the Mysterians to test humanity. They worked it in, and it made sense. Heck, the year after this, we're going to have Atragon, and they technically, Manda, Manda, however you want to say the name, is a shoe-in. You know, not shoe-in, a shoe-horned in to Atragon. But it feels organic in that. It feels Mm -hmm. like it's part of it, even though he was added later at Tanaka's insistence. Maguma was, is absolutely pointless, and you can tell uh-huh. that originally in this script, it was just an earthquake. That's all it was. <laughs> you know, that's what it was. The plot point that they try to fit him into is that he runs interference on the construction of the rockets in Antarctica. They even say, oh, it must have been an earthquake. And then you yeah. find out it's the giant walrus. And then they're like, <laughs> oh, crap, it's a giant walrus. Where did it come from? And Takeshi Kimura just says, eh, the world's mysterious. And that's as much of an origin as you get. <laughs> yeah. And, and then they're it. like, well, what are we going to do? The walrus is a problem. Well, we should just kill it. Okay. I've... And then five minutes later, literally, I timed it. Five minutes later, Maguma is dead. <laughs> so, you know, I think... David on the Kaiju Apostle like just haphazardly mentions that it was he only had like five minutes of screen time. You really did time to, time it to five minutes. Yes, that's hilarious. <laughs> that's, that's that's funny. Yeah, I uh, timed it. We watched the movie together today, but I timed it before you got here just to make just to make sure. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, I've yeah, I've never seen a plot point that was so disliked by the writers and all the filmmakers involved it's just so carelessly thrown in (laughs) yeah it is it is i mean there's like three or four movies that apparently honda at one point or another said this is my favorite movie that i've ever made and this was one of them and he qualified it by saying like this is one of my favorite movies that i've made except for the monster (laughs) yeah it makes me wonder if he ever saw the dub version because maybe he would have been happier with the dub version because yeah, was it Brenko? It was Brenko. The, when they brought it over to the United States, they took Maguma right out. In fact, the, the guys who worked on it, the dubbers actually called him Wally the Walrus, who was a character from Woody Woodpecker cartoons. They hated him <laughs> and apparently screened the movie to American test audiences and they laughed at Maguma. <laughs> so they're just like, and gone. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's just nothing impressive to say about it, honestly. I, I didn't even think the suit was all that impressive. They had two different actors play the monster for the few scenes that it was in. Uh, yeah, one, one was Nakajima, was not, I know that. Yeah, and another had a, a brief cameo in the film as another, like a, a human character. So it was just an unfortunate side effect of studio interference. And this was probably the worst case of it that Honda has ever run into that I can think of because everything else that he was kind of forced to push into a movie worked better here. It was just kind of slung to the wall like paint. And I, (laughs) it dripped. (laughs) It dripped a lot. (laughs) And since we're already talking about it, you know, you said uh, this will work better as an ultra Q episode. Here we go. That (laughs) Maguma, and uh, Maguma just can't catch a break. That suit got recycled for an Mm -hmm. episode of Ultra Q. And I know this because I've been going through the Mill Creek releases of all the Ultra stuff, and I had never seen Ultra Q before. 
So you get to the penultimate episode and they do this weird story that felt a little too busy where a couple of the main characters are on a passenger jet that flies into a cloud that is actually a pocket universe. So the episode is being spent trying to figure out how do we escape the pocket universe? Oh, wait, just to make things more complicated, there is a police officer escorting a convicted murderer who manages to inexplicably get out of the handcuffs and steal the cop's gun. That was a great idea. And, <laughs> and you know, is kind of holding everybody hostage. They go outside of the plane. He's like, rrr, rrr, do stuff. And inexplicably, we have a giant walrus in this pocket dimension. And it's freaking Maguma. And I'm just like, Funny why are is, you here? There is no exactly. point to having you here. This story's already busier than it needs to be. Why are you here? <laughs> Once again, he's pushed into a story he doesn't need to be in. Yeah, and I think I think it was a very similar thing. I think if I remember correctly, I could be wrong. Jimmy can talk with Danny DeMana about this because I swear this is what I heard from Danny DeMana, that that script didn't have a monster in it, but the network is just like, this is the last episode we're going to air. Put a freaking monster in it. Yeah, the network kept demanding more and more giant monsters. It initially wasn't supposed to be giant monster-centric, but because that was what was popular in cinemas, that's what Subarai gave him. So that's that. Yeah, again, Maguma exists only because of outside interference. Poor guy. <laughs> yeah, poor guy. And you really made me feel bad for him because you pointed out two stories he was just not needed. <laughs> <laughs> but he made the poster, so. Yeah, see, and that's the thing. You watch the trailer <laughs> for this movie. He's in the trailer. He's actually fairly prominent in the trailer, and yeah, mm -hmm. and he's on the poster. They gave him a just enough screen time they could put him in the promotional materials and be like, we have monsters. Come see this movie. It's actually about a rogue star, but we have monsters, so come see it. <sighs> so here's, here's the question I've got for you, Nathan. All righty. The budget of this film, what it was, seems to be in, in dispute. August Rogone says it was the biggest budget that Toho had given uh, a production yet, but Edgar Chesky, Steve Rifle, said that was given a modest budget, a, a budget of about 350000 U.S. dollars. But, of course, Subaraya pulled out some amazing effect shots, some amazing set designs, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And I think of his space opera movies, this actually has some of the prettiest shots uh, of Mysterians down in our space and, you know, Garth. While the movie isn't my favorite, I do think he really knocked it out of the park again in terms mm -hmm. of effects. Do you have a favorite effect shot or, or, or some sort of like standout effect shot that you really think transcends both the budget and the movie? For me, it would probably be in the, this shot gets repeated in flashback, but it would be the scene where Akira Kubo is looking at Gorath when he gets his memory wiped. Mm -hmm. It's an absolutely fascinating shot. Again, reminds me of a couple different things, actually, from Star Trek. Reminds me of the motion picture when Spock attempts the mind meld with V'ger, to a certain extent. And there's an episode of TOS, the Corbomite Maneuver, where you had mm. the, the giant yeah. golden golf ball, not Death Star thing that, <laughs> <laughs> that accosts the Enterprise and that made me think of that as well. You know, more in terms of the fact that it's this large spherical object and it dwarfs the Enterprise. And in this, Gorath is dwarfing. It's not the JX-2. It was another ship. It was, was attached. Yeah, to it was a, a shuttle. Yeah. Connected to it, yeah. yeah, a, yeah. A, a shuttle. Which is interesting with the numbers that they give out. For the size of Gorath, I was paying attention to that. You want to talk about insane. Gorath has to be incredibly dense because they said mm -hmm. it's three-fourths the size of Earth, but it has 6,000 times the mass. <laughs> yeah. It's insane. And there are, Jimmy has assured me that there are spatial bodies that are like that. <laughs> So, so you don't have to take point on that. Like what? Okay. So we know that there are actually rogue stars traversing the cosmos. Yes. Is actually. A thing. Yes. Uh, originally I was thinking that we would, if we wanted to talk about some more of the scientific stuff, like if I did a full fledged episode on this, you know, the uh, Toku topic would, would have been something like this. I thought it'll be near earth objects, Neos, they call mm. them. But then mm. I found out that rogue stars are a thing. 
they call Gorath a rogue star. It's not a rogue planet, which Jimmy corrected me about that because in the previous episode, I called Gorath a rogue planetoid. It's not. It's a rogue star. Well, the confusion between star and planet is that the, the same Japanese word is used for both. And a lot of people get confused with that in terms of subtitling and, and yeah. translating. And, stuff. and uh, that's Gamera why, that's versus why... Giron has that problem. <laughs> well, do you remember when, when Godzilla, the planet eater, we were trying to translate its title accurately. And a lot of people were translating it as Godzilla, the star eater. Yeah, or uh, eater of stars and, and things like eater that. Eater of stars. That. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But it was actually, it depends on the context. And in that context, it was planet. So I, I think that's where a lot of the confusion come from, yeah. comes from. So it's a rogue star. It's a real thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, rogue star or intergalactic star. I've, uh, I also saw that. I have a lot of notes about this, but I won't go into all of it. But the short definition is that it's a star that is not gravitationally bound to any galaxy. A lot of scientific theories about how these things work is that they came about because of the collision of two galaxies, which causes a lot of gravitational disruptions. And then it launches stars out into the rest of the universe because there have been telescopes that have seen stars or at least seen light from stars that are don't seem to be part of galaxies. So they're wondering what the heck is going on. And then, <laughs> then there's the really fun hypothesis that's kind of related. <laughs> <laughs> that says uh, rogue stars came about because uh, they're stars that got flung out by black holes. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I'm just like... You know, it's, you know it's going through my head right now, right? You know... <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of different things I could... Uh, <laughs> you know what's going through my head. <laughs> um, uh, does it uh, start with space and end with Zilla? <laughs> 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 God. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, the, 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 that, those weaponized black holes that we had at one point because <laughs> someone thought that a great way to deal with Godzilla was a black hole gun. <laughs> a black hole gun, absolutely. <laughs> I see no flaw there. <laughs> <laughs> what were you actually thinking? <laughs> It was the former. It was you. You nailed it. Although you know, my favorite Godzilla movie <coughs> came out. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, <laughs> hot take! Hot take! Oh my gosh! Hot take! <laughs> that might so get much, you murdered on so Twitter much. right yeah, now. Yeah, oh, oh, I know. There's gonna be so much. Oh, did you hear? Did you hear? G Man changes opinion. He loves Space Godzilla now. <laughs> you heard it here first, <laughs> folks. <laughs> <laughs> According to Jimmy, as long as your favorite movie is not The Phantom Menace, he'll be okay with it. Okay, we're good. <laughs> but yeah, and there's been some some interesting things. Apparently, a lot of the ones that have been discovered by scientists come from the Andromeda Galaxy. As of 2015, they found 675 rogue stars. And a lot of the articles I was looking at said that, interestingly, which this just muddies the waters even more about whether or not Gorath, depending on how you want to translate it, is a star or a planet. They said that near as they can, as these scientists can tell, these rogue stars are red giants. And Gorath is very orangish red. <laughs> yeah, the design of Gorath was very fantastic but also ominous as well. And, and everything you're talk, telling me about how, you know, it's coming from the Andromeda galaxy, it's traversed so far and whatnot, really adds a layer of gravity. <laughs> um, I haven't used that uh, button in a while. <laughs> really adds to the gravity of the situation, you mm -hmm. know, because it's a very alien body. Yeah coming out of the void mm -hmm. to take out the earth. And they even explained that it's going to destroy the earth even before it hits. It's gravity alone yeah. will suck everything yeah. out. In fact, they actually try creating some more tension by saying, because originally they say, oh, it's 6,000 times the gravity of Earth. And then they're finding out, it's like, oh, no, it's up to 6,200 now. This is getting nuts. How does yeah. it, it increase that much in a short period of time? And, you know, they're, they're freaking out. And you get some nice tokusatsu effects toward the end where it turns into something of a disaster movie. Mm -hmm. In fact couple of the sources I looked at said that in a lot of ways, this is like a 70s disaster. It's almost, it could be argued, a precursor to, say, Subversion of Japan. I kept thinking of that movie as I was yeah. watching it. It's like a, it's a more fantastic version of the Submersion of Japan. Yeah. Because in Submersion of Japan, 
you, you can't escape unless you're yeah. not on Japan Island. Yeah, Japanese which Island. is why I thought it was uh, interesting that uh, there, I know an earlier draft of this script was just supposed to be about the elites of the world figuring out how to escape, but then Honda mm-hmm. changed it because he wanted it to be the world coming together and solving right. this global problem. Which is definitely a plainly stated theme and, again, goes back to Battle of Outer Space and it goes back to the Mysterians where people even forget that the Cold War is going on and they just decide, okay, this is a global problem and we have to figure out how to solve it together. So let's pool all of our resources and everything and take care of this. You know, it has this very idealized view of the UN as I went into pretty in-depth in my episode on the Mysterians. So yeah, it's and I very, think, I think di- you, very different in that sense because you know if this was an American film, it would probably just be the Americans saving the world, <laughs> and the Russians you, would be trying to screw it up for whatever reason. <laughs> and you did an excellent job with that uh, on the Mysterians. I don't want to like parrot that, but I, I did really enjoy the one little bit: the nuclear powers declassified information mm-hmm. about their own weapons and rockets and research and stuff like that, just to help. Because we're all in this together now. Yeah. And uh, Honda received heavy criticism from critics, particularly in Japan, for this idealized vision of people working together and whatnot. And I found that very sad. And I I was watching this movie and I I was thinking, man, we need this kind of cooperation now in our world today. We do. How much would we avoid if we just got along? And having Honda no longer with us really is a, a knife twist in the side because movies like these going back and watching them I sit there and I look at everything that the characters whether they're interesting or not but I look at all the characters are accomplishing just by working together and it is an inspiring thing I think the themes of unity never get old in these movies and it really really helps carry these movies one of the reasons why they have the test of time is because of these themes well, and the the other thing that, you know, just to add a wrinkle on that that I think is interesting is, yes, it is about the world coming together. It's about the, the United Nations doing their thing. But at the same time, you also have Japan spearheading a lot of this stuff, which I think is interesting. And again, going back to the Mysterians episode, I bring that up because I said Japan had just joined the United Nations This was Mm -hmm. a very idealistic time, and they really wanted to be this voice of peace. You see that in the the last war as well, where Japan is trying to be this voice of reason. They're trying to say, no, Federation, Alliance, stop fighting with each other. Let's (laughs) let's talk about this, okay, guys? We'll do another peace summit. It'll be fine. And then everything just unravels by the end of it, which is what separates this or any of those other Honda science fiction films from The Last War is because they actually succeed. Mm -hmm. And you're definitely right. This message of unity, this concept of unity is it's something that we could really use right now. Yeah, and, and uh, we, we don't really see that in too many, well, too many movies, but in general, and too much media in general these days. Uh, the only really prominent example of it I can think of in American pop culture would probably be Star Trek. It's a big idea in Star Trek. Yeah, it's a big idea in Star Trek. Uh, it's still a big idea in Super Sentai. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, beyond that, I can't, there's, there's not. There's some superhero movies that touch on it, you know, kind of the Avengers. Yeah. You know, yeah, touches on it. That. You know, it's something that they had to get to. You know, you watch that first Avengers movie from 2012, and you know, for three quarters of the movie, the team's fighting with itself, and mm-hmm. then the aliens mm-hmm. show up. Spoiler warning: <laughs> the aliens show <laughs> up, and then suddenly they're like, "Ah, crap! Maybe we should stop fighting each other and fight the aliens." <laughs> and once again, it's always aliens. Whether it's Honda or Wheaton in Marvel Universe, <laughs> it's always aliens Super Sentai. that bring us yeah. together. We won't get into the mild controversies of the week and the, the kaiju fandom with those two guys on the Tokushatsu show that are like talking about xenophobia and Ultraman. I mean... <laughs> Is that still a point of contention right now lately? Yeah, it, it, it got on. brought up again about a week ago, <laughs> uh, about a week ago from this broadcast, except they were talking about Common Rider. Well, of course. Guys. Well, more power to them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we just need aliens to attack us and we'll be good. Uh, <laughs> you know, I have actually theorized I, for a while, you get a very positive, not invasion version of this in Star Trek. The Vulcans come to visit uh, yeah. uh, come to visit humanity, and they realize, oh my gosh, 
we're in a bigger universe. Maybe we should stop fighting with each other. Oh, wait, we still have to fight World War III. And then in 100 years, we'll get our acts together. Star Trek lore, because I'm a nerd. Well, me too. I'm right there. Yeah, but it does seem like a thing that would happen. You know, an outside force comes in. In a lot mm -hmm. of cases, it would probably be an invasion. And then suddenly everyone has to, re you know, it takes that for everyone to realize we need to put aside our differences and take care of the bigger problem because yeah. it's coming after all of us. It's not just one country or whatever. You know, in this case, it's not aliens. It's a rogue star that is about to destroy all of us. You, you'll yeah. see, and you'll and see then, this kind of like in, you know, in some of those, you know, meteor disaster movies where kind of the same thing happens. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, uh, Armageddon. Yeah, Armageddon, <laughs> Deep Impact, take your pick. <laughs> I don't know what it's exactly what it says about human nature that it takes an outside force to make that happen. It's funny that we keep using outside force, and we're talking in this case about a rogue star with gravity that just wants to suck us to our deaths. But <laughs> yeah, it takes a heavy force to do um, that. I, 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 mean, I don't know, man. It um, felt pretty Lovecraftian at points. I mean, Gorath would fit in very well in an H.P. Lovecraft story. In H.P. Lovecraft, yeah, I agree with that. I, I mean that, that. I mean the memory wipe. I mean that should tell you something. It's you know the Gorath is so huge and powerful and impersonal that Akira Kubo's brain can't handle it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think. Regardless of what it is, whether it be aliens or a giant celestial body about to ram into us, it says a lot for the movie itself that despite its shortcomings, its flaws, the fact that I think you could pack the same story into a 25-minute episode, mm -hmm. it says a lot that the overriding theme is still the big takeaway of the film. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the, the visuals, because Japanese film is a cinema that shows. It's very showy. Yes. And the special effects are always going to be a big point here. Yeah. And in this particular case, it's a gorgeous looking movie. And I, I mentioned earlier, you know, not every movie that I find boring is a movie I find uninteresting because uh, I think there's plenty of things in this movie to find interesting, whether it be the designs, the themes, some minor character moments, et cetera, et cetera, or Wally the Walrus. Um, <laughs> Especially when he's wearing a COVID mask. <laughs> Especially when he's wearing a COVID mask. So the big takeaway is, is while I find, I, I don't understand why this is one of Honda's favorite films of his, but I do think that it's a serviceable movie. It's an interesting movie to look at. And I think the themes are worth diving into, even if I don't entirely get sucked in by the characters of which there are too many doing very little in the film. I agree with everything you just said. And it's interesting also, I should have brought this up a few minutes ago when we were talking about the themes. You know, we're talking about the world coming together because of this outside force. But the movie ends with the character saying, let's keep doing this. We've beaten Gorath. We avoided Gorath, but let's keep doing this. We learned an important lesson. Let's keep practicing it. Yeah. That is applicable to everything. I agree. Let me tell you, we can mine a whole heck of a lot more out of this than, say, Rebirth of Mothra 2, which was the subject of our previous oh, episode. <laughs> well, you inflicted that on yourself and Jimmy, so I'm not going <laughs> to. And poor Bex, too. Yeah. And poor, yeah. Oh, geez. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard that episode yet, but yeah, the, the end of that was interesting, to say the least. <laughs> I won't spoil it for you. Uh, all of my listeners, you've probably heard that episode already. You know exactly what I'm talking about. But I think this is as good a spot as any, you know, because we've hit the one hour mark here. And, you know, oh, I don't want to get other buildings shot into space because that's what it actually says in my contract. If I violate it, I get shot into space. So. <laughs> <laughs> At least we know where they go now. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> so hopefully not Gorath because that would be terrifying. And I like retaining my memories <laughs> jimmy <laughs> on the other hand has faced down gorath he's mentioned that on his twitter and he oh. can vouch for how terrifying it is <laughs> so that might explain a few things maybe you had some memories wiped and they've just been slowly coming back to you hence why you say a lot of weird things on the air <laughs> you had never thought about that before huh hmm. okay might want to see a doctor about that
So <laughs> this is as good a point as any to mention that for our next episode, we will be finishing the Summer of Mothra, bringing Bex back one more time to talk about the final entry of the Rebirth of Mothra trilogy, Rebirth of Mothra 3, which from what I can remember, because it's been a while since I've seen it, I remember being better than two, but that's not hard. It is. It is. <laughs> I will leave any concern. It is better. Better, but. <laughs> yeah, I, I expect that to be coming up a lot. <laughs> and then after that, our next mini-sode will be touched on it briefly already, but it will be Matango. And I am really looking forward to that one. That was one of six tokusatsu films by Honda that I wrote a very extensive paper on for an independent mm. study in my grad school days. And I can't wait to share my research on that film. Well, like I said, Kamira wrote that one as well. I think that's his magnum opus. Uh, I think it's one of Honda's best films. Uh, it was actually a film that we watched that was part of the curriculum in a, a film criticism class I took in college years and years and years and years ago. And I was in shock that was on the docket. That uh, so, is amazing. Yeah. I'm a little yeah. bit jealous. You've been hearing a lot of my research already on the show in previous episodes, and you'll get to hear more about it next time for the next minisode, I should say. All right, Jack, this is the point where you get to shill yourself, do some shameless self-promoting. I get so. to, oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> I don't even know if I'm ready for this. Uh, well, okay, so you can find me on Twitter uh, at G-Man of Mysterioid for all your Godzilla, Gamera, Ultraman, and correct opinion needs. Uh, you, can also, <laughs> you can also check out my podcast, The Drift Space. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at The Drift Space where we really just go over anything nerdtastic. We've covered Star Trek. We've covered Dragon Ball Z. We've covered, ooh, I'm about to give away some episodes. But I will, I will mention that we will be covering Godzilla very soon here. And that will be an interesting one because, Nathan, I think I already, I already told you which one we're covering, right? Actually, no, I don't think you did. You just said there was going to be some Godzilla on there. Okay. All right. All right. Well, I'm going to let it be a surprise then. All right. We'll go with, we'll roll with that, but there will be Godzilla on it shortly, but check it out anyway. We've got a lot of good episodes coming your way and it's a solid group of four people. Including uh, your sister, which is great. Including my sister, including my wonderful sister who don't know anything, but love a lot of things. So <laughs> <laughs> that was great. <laughs> And yes, listeners, the name of his podcast is referring to what you think it's referring to. Yes, it is referring to that drift. Yes, it is. <laughs> Which I wholeheartedly approve of. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot again, Jack, for stopping by. Absolutely. And let me know if you ever want to come back. You're always welcome. Just Try not to start any more bar fights and hit mysterious numbers. I will try. I will try. But I'll tell you this. It, it has been an honor to be on here. Uh, I love your show, and I'm, I'm very happy you asked me on here. And I'll tell you ahead of time, I'm already chomping at the bit to come back on here. So thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Jimmy is actually looking forward to having you on again, too. Next time, he's going to make sure that he remembers your arrival. <laughs> Round two. All right. <laughs> Round two. <laughs> Fight! <laughs> I would pay to see that brawl. <laughs> the first well, ever Monster ever... Island pay-per-view. G-Man versus Jimmy. <laughs> you could see round one if you get the uh, security cameras off the building back. <laughs> we'll, we'll, put it on, we'll put it on YouTube along with all the rest of those uh, YouTube videos you're so ashamed of. <laughs> yeah, God. <laughs> we'll, we'll give you more reasons to hate YouTube. <laughs> Again, like I said, thanks a lot, man. And with that, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nathan Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is TheMonsterIsla1. 
You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wander on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Kowatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. It can be downloaded from ocremix.org. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and other fine podcasters. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to spread the word about the show. You can also support MIFV on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara! Sayonara!